0: Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of Too Much Soul with your girl, Cindy. So excited about today's episode. I have a very special guest and her name is Mila. Hi, Mila. Hi, Cindy. (laughs) Just to kind of give people an idea of um, who you are and how we met um, so Mila is also a Korean adoptee um, for mm-hmm. those of you that know my story. and um, I've told people and i'm I wasn't I'm not sure if you're aware of this either, but I'd met any other Korean adoptees until the year that I came out with my book, which was two thousand eighteen. Mm-hmm. so two about two years ago. Mm -hmm. So, so crazy. And then like I met Amanda, then she introduced me to some people in the group. And then um, she invited me to the, um, a Korean conference where some of you guys were speaking about your adoption experience. And she asked me to come and that's where I met you. And I remember before I went up to speak, um, you were there and you were talking about your story and um, I'm just, I'm, really big into people's energy. And I just remember when you were telling your story, I was so drawn into it and just the passion you emoted, like as you were speaking about your story, um, just really pulled me in and I was like, I've got to say something to her or meet her after this is (laughs) over. And then, um, luckily you were still there and I was uh, selling and signing some books and I got to meet, I got to meet you and your beautiful family. Your kids are (laughs) adorable. And like, I just love how supportive your husband is of you and like, just to see how he is with the kids. Um, So that just kind of started like our introduction. And then I've, I've seen you do spoken word and I'm just, uber impressed with you and your spirit and your energy. So I'm really excited to share you with my listeners so they can see how amazing you are also. Before we kind of just get into um, some questions that I have for you, um, just tell everyone about yourself. Um, Like I know they know about my transracial adoption experience, but yours is a little different and you've gone through the reuniting process as well. So if you don't mind sharing that with everyone.
1: Yeah, sure. First of all, I just want to say that I'm really grateful to be talking with you right now. And you almost made me cry with all your gushing. <laughs> I <laughs> definitely felt the same way when I saw you at the KAC meeting. I was like to Mike, to my husband, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to meet her. I have to meet her. And I want kids to meet her. <laughs> so I was so glad you were there and we were able to connect.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely.
1: Um, and I, I love your story. And I think that there are are so many themes to your story that are universal, not just to Korean adoptees, but to the human experience. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So the questions that you know you sent, I was just like, oh, these are really good, and I tried to <laughs> prepare a little bit to gather my thoughts because I was mm-hmm. like, oh man, these are things where you could just like drone on forever. But so in short, I guess you know, my main response to the question of when people ask what has your experience been like as a Korean adoptee or a transracial adoptee? My, the, the most simple answer in one word is complicated. And I think Mm. that a lot of people can relate to that. Um, but you know, I was born in South Korea in 1975. So, uh, and at six months old, I was adopted into a white American military family Mm -hmm. and my dad was a career Navy. So that means that he had chosen this as career. Uh, he was a high-ranking officer in the Navy at the time that they adopted me. Um, and so it's kind of crazy, but they told me that they went to Korea after meeting a couple other military families in Japan where they were stationed and decided they would try maybe look into adopting a daughter from Korea. So on their first trip when they got there, they thought they were going to be looking through some photo albums or, you know, kind of getting a feel for things. But when they got there, the head of the adoption agency at the time came into the office and said, oh, yeah, we have your your daughter ready for you. And my mom, you know, dug her nails into my dad's thigh and was like, what? You know, and he just kind of calmly, you know, squeezed her hand and was like, let's just go with it. Let's just see what happens? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so they went to lunch and came back. And this guy came out with me in his hands and plopped me on my mom's lap. And my mom says that from that moment on, it was a done deal. So I think that that part of the story is, is really interesting. And my mm-hmm. dad postulates that it's because he was a, you know, white American, high ranking military officer, and they were I guess, very eager to kind of have him have them adopt from Mm. their adoption agency. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's really complicated. And I think that it also alludes to the roots of Korean adoption in kind of this white American imperialistic, colonialistic uh, viewpoint. And I know that Mm -hmm. that's not everyone's experience, but I think that's where the roots of this practice come from. And that's why I say it's complicated, because I know that uh, I think that's another thing about adoption for me is that while, of course, there are commonalities and shared experiences for Korean adoptees and transracial adoptees, I think ultimately no two adoptee stories and experiences are the same. And I think in my own journey, I've experienced that, you know, because of my adoption into this kind of white American military family with a guy who was a high ranking officer, you know, we moved around every one to two years. Um, I had attended 10 different high school, or sorry, 10 different schools by the time I graduated from high school. Um, so we moved around a lot. We lived in Japan and the Philippines, Hawaii, you know, all over the States. There were times that we, you know, when we were living in the Philippines, I remember we had a couple of housekeepers and one of them lived with us. And, She was a Filipina woman and here I am Asian as well, but supposedly, you know, this daughter of this white family. But, um, there, there were times I remember they, you know, because of my dad's position, they, they would do a lot of entertaining, you know, they had to have these big parties where they'd have all these other officers and their wives come over and have it catered and all this kind of stuff. And I remember all the help when we were living in the Philippines was. Filipino in Filipina. Mm. And it was just this very weird, complicated experience for me, you know, like I, I just, yeah. I think is, and at that time I was like nine years old, so I didn't even really know how to process all of that, you know, kind of being mm-hmm. in these awkward and weird situations where I felt like I looked like the people who were quote unquote the help, but like at the same time, you know, yeah, it just, it, it was just a weird experience. Right. And so it I think- sounds
0: like it, you're, you're looking at people that look like you, you know, even though you guys are of a different ethnicity per se, you know, but you're of the same race and it's like, you're on one side of the, you know, table and they're on the other. It just, yeah, it sounds like, I'm sure it was probably hard for you to process at the time.
1: Yeah, it really was. And I think at the same time, you know, I think because of where I was growing up and the family that I was a part of, I experienced a lot of racism growing up, like a lot of just blatant mm. racism, like not even microaggressions, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, like the kids, passive aggressive.
0: Like, they were just like, yeah, no, it. we're just going to tell you to your yeah, face. I mean, pulling
1: up their eyes and, you know, going making weird Uh, noises, but also like I I experienced some physical violence as well. I mean, other Mm. kids throwing ice and rocks at me while Mm -hmm. yelling racial slurs and, Mm -hmm. you know, hitting and punching and, you know, different things like that. So I think in that sense, so here it's like, yeah, so I think just all of these things coming together, for my experience as an adoptee, it was very, it was very isolating, very Alienating, you know. Even though we sometimes lived among, like, lived in Asian countries, we were on military bases that were primarily in white spaces. So I think that that was that was really challenging to my identity. And then, of course, reuniting um, in my thirties. It's been over ten years now. It was in two thousand nine, and and that just really in a way, turned my world upside down. I think for a long time, I had really suppressed my Asianness as a form of survival, you know, mm. like trying to just survive growing up in this very, like, predominantly white and racist community. I mean, even sometimes, you know, my my own brothers who were white, and but, you know, they were my brothers. I mean, they would make fun of me too. You know what I mean? So I think yeah. it was just... Growing up in this environment, I just, I, I grew up feeling so ashamed and feeling embarrassed and feeling like there was something wrong with me,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: but then reuniting in my thirties and then a year later, having children, starting to have children, I think it really, yeah, it really forced me to confront some of these, these things, but also helped me, I think over time to start to develop a healthier uh, racial identity and ethnic identity, where, mm. you know, there isn't as much shame around all of that. But, you know, I'm like 45 now. So I've had a long time to
0: yeah, <laughs> process and figure process some and stuff work out. Reasons.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I guess that, those are some of the, the, the main points, I guess, of yeah. my experience as an adoptee
0: yeah well, you know, so we were probably adopted around the same time frame. So mm-hmm. it's interesting because I've learned um, more about like that whole adoption process and pretty much just how back in the day it was just like a money thing. like they yes. were just giving Korean children away um, yes. just to generate like that that revenue um, yes. for the economy. Um, So that was interesting. And now how they've had to change a lot of the laws and regulations around adoption. Um, And Mm -hmm. I know that you're a huge advocate for adoptees um, for justice, I believe the group is called. And a lot of um, things that I wasn't aware of. And I feel like I've experienced pieces and parts of things that you guys advocate for. And, you know, it's like these people are going over there adopting these children bringing them back, but not really, you know, filling out the correct paperwork. And then years later, as adults, you know, a certain situation comes up and then they find out they're not legal. They're not a U.S. Right. citizen. Um, yeah. So I just can't even imagine.
1: I think you hit on an important point that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. Uh kind of reframing the adoption narrative, right? Because the, the dominant narrative is it's what I often refer to as the ag- adoption gospel, where it's this narrative that's very narrow and it excludes more complex narratives, right? So the, the more dominant narrative requires us as adoptees to view our adoption stories primarily as kind of these beautiful fairy tales of gratitude yeah. and good fortune where we were saved and we were rescued because we were orphans you know and and as the truth comes out you know and as we really go behind the scenes you we start to realize oh wait no the the real narrative is that really what it what it's built upon is uh like really financial inequity, like social injustice, like all of that, the the way I often frame it to people is that ultimately the reason I was adopted was because my Korean mother was poor, Mm. uneducated, unconverted, and brown. And so her love Mm. was seen as less worthy than a love that was white, Mm. rich, educated, and Christian. Because, you know, because I'm in reunion with both of my parents, both my appa and my oma, I know their stories. Mm. And her story is she didn't, she didn't want to give me up. She was perfectly capable of raising me. There was nothing wrong with her. But in Korea in the 1970s, she was poor. She didn't have an education. And if you were not married, of course, Mm. there was the stigma that came along with that. Korea... and they still don't but especially back then they didn't have any support services for single moms there are no laws that protect um em- employees so an employer finds out that she's unwed and has a child they can fire her right there right then and there with no accountability or any responsibility so there was there was no way and even now it's a struggle for a single mom yeah. to be able to provide for their children And so it really wasn't a choice. It was not a choice. She didn't choose to give me up. We were forcibly separated because there was no support. So I have an issue with these adoption agencies as well. Like you said, the money part of it Mm -hmm. is they could have invested in infrastructure to help support at risk families, you know, provided resources and um support for these moms so that they could raise their children. But instead, it was like, oh, no, 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 We will happily take your child. Good luck with the trauma Mm -hmm. and managing your life.
0: Well, Um, yeah. And hopefully I'm I'm not misspeaking. And if I am, let me know. But from what I've also read, um, from my understanding, if a woman is single and has a child, that child is born into the world with no rights no governmental rights, um, because the men had all the rights. And so like, that makes absolutely no sense. Um, But you know, it's like, when we're so used to America and how things are here, it's just Mm -hmm. unfathomable for things to be like that. Um, But so when I read about that, I was like, oh my gosh, like, that is crazy. And just the different (laughs) stories that I've heard of, you know, people like, having children and then their child being taken away um, for the financial gain of it. Mm -hmm. And then the mother being told, Oh, your child died during birth. Um, So like the stories that I've heard in relation to like, just the reasons why there were so many children up for adoption. Like it was just numerous reasons from like a financial perspective, from a governmental perspective, Mm -hmm. from a societal perspective, um, so it's crazy, but I mean, from my understanding, it's gotten better, but I'm sure that there are still some laws or regulations that are still outdated, um, that are not in favor of women or mothers, um, mm-hmm. and, and often children. So,
1: yeah, and I think culturally, there is still such a heavy stigma. With it, I mean, you know, so this was a decade ago, so this was a while ago, but, um, but still, you know, like in the 21st century, when we went to Korea the first time to reunite with my Korean family, one of, you know, we went through like a birthland tour, and so one of the part, a part of the tour was actually this really intense um, visit to a home for unwed mothers. Okay, mm. so. These are women who, these are s- single women who are pregnant and they're there trying to figure out am I going to try, am I going to keep my tri- child and try to raise my child or am I going to relinquish my child for adoption? And so the fact that in 2009, there were homes wow. <laughs> in Korea for this very purpose. And there's this one woman that we m- met there, I won't say her name, but Mm-hmm. she was in her 30s at the time okay and intelligent obviously very capable and you know she had gotten pregnant and when she told her boyfriend her boyfriend left her basically wow. and in the 21st century in 2009 she was employed you know like I said perfectly capable had a job intelligent like whatever she had she had to quit her job and basically run away she she didn't tell her parents what was going on. And she left and came to this home because the the stigma at that time was still so shaming that she felt as a woman in her 30s, perfectly capable of being employed and taking care of herself and a child, felt like she had to go into hiding. Mm. And so I think that, you know, to your point where it's things are changing a lot because of adoptees actually in Korea mm-hmm. uh people like Jane Trinka uh you know advocating for both adoptees and for original mothers there's actually a day in Korea called single mothers day we don't wow. have that in america because we can't even fathom that right but right. they have a day now there that is supposed to raise awareness and try to help shift the stigma there uh about single mothers. So that's great. But it's also an indication of how far Korea still has to go because they have to have a boy like that (laughs) to try to destigmatize being a single mom.
0: Wow. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That is crazy. Well, and then you talked about, you know, the uh, reuniting piece, like that isn't, every time I've tried to go through that process, I kind of get Uh, Knocked up against the wall, where it just is like, okay, now I don't know what direction to go in. And I haven't just vigilantly pursued it either. Um, But, you know, like I know, I know you have and you've gone through that process. I know other people that have gone through that process and it's complicated to your point. Like, you know, it's like almost like a sense of joy being able to be reunited, see people that have your same DNA, DNA. But then it's like, these aren't people that you grew up with. They didn't raise you. And then mm-hmm. there's the language barrier. Um, so, I mean, I always hear so many mixed um, emotions when it comes to reunion. And, you know, like oftentimes too, like um, I know one person that I met that was uh, reunited with their m- birth mother And she had a whole other family that did not know about him. Mm -hmm. And she wanted Mm -hmm. to be a part of his life. And she did see him and introduced him to her side of the family. Um, But her immediate family, as far as like husband and children, Mm -hmm. other children she had, they did not know about him. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just the stories I've heard are just, you know, extraordinary. Some are feel good and some are you know, still, like, still in that processing um, moment of trying to figure out, like, how do I really feel about this? Like, you know,
1: um,
0: after being separated from, you know, what it would be your biological family for, like, many, many years. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you're, you're addressing the complexity of it. Because I think, again, it goes back to, the dominant narrative that people they just want to hear a fairy tale and they want to hear that everything works out great and especially mm-hmm. with reunion I think in particular with reunion people use reunion as like oh see it all worked out like so you mm-hmm. should just be fine and everything should be good and aren't you grateful yeah. thinking that it's kind of the bow that ties everything up nice and neat and there's there's no more issues like everything's been fixed and so there's yeah. this kind of romanticizing reunion, right? Even movies yeah. love to do it, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that I'm, you know, you're so right where it's, it's so much more complicated than that. And now that I've been in reunion for a decade and I have kids now, but I think the thing for me that, that was surprising because, you know, I think going into it, you know, I did a lot of reading and research. So I tried to prepare myself for reunion and tried to understand that it wasn't going to be a fairy tale but i think you still have this fantasy and until you reunite you can hold on to that fantasy but then mm. once you are in reunion that fantasy Reality. you have to let it go and i think yeah. that that's another loss right so while reunion certainly i you know i don't regret it at all i am so grateful mm-hmm. to be in reunion i'm fortunate because i i am able to be in reunion with both my Appa and my Oma. They're not together, but I have relationships with both of them, which are very complicated, of course. But I'm very grateful for that because like you said, there is a lot of affirmation and validation for who I am that I have never previously had. But I think there are also new layers of Mm -hmm. grief and loss that are opened up by reunion. For instance, you know, in my mind I have this fantasy of like, oh, my kids are gonna grow up and they're gonna totally know where they came from and they're gonna know their Korean grandmother and grandfather and it's gonna be so wonderful. The truth is like, no, I mean yes, they do know who they are and I show them photos and I try to talk about them and they know the story overall, but they're not growing up up with them. You know what I mean? Like we can barely talk because we don't have the same language. They're on the other side of the world. It's super expensive. And you know what I mean? It's just there, there are all these barriers, language, geographical, financial, cultural. Um, So while again, I'm able to hold that complexity where I can see both the good and the difficult, I can be grateful and sad. You know, I can be angry and happy all at the same Mm -hmm. time. Um, but I think it is really so complex. And as you alluded to, on my opposite side, I'm a secret. His wife and his children don't know anything about me. Wow. And on my oma's side, you know, she eventually did tell her daughters, but they initially didn't want to have anything to do with me. And the older one still doesn't really want to have anything to do with me. The younger one is softened up a little bit, but not yeah. like totally, you know, and those relationships are very strained. You know, I yeah. I have more contact with my APA. I think in some ways his personality and my personality are much more alike. I think he also feels while I think he does feel responsible, he is less tortured. Whereas my oma, obviously because she's the mom and had to go through all of that, I think she feels more tortured. And I think it's painful for her to be in contact with me because it brings up all that trauma for her. And uh, every time like she messages me, or there's this one time she sent me a video not too long ago, and I could barely watch it because... She's just crying the whole time. And so for Aww. both of us, it's really difficult. The Yeah. I think I'm a you know, I'm a very emotional person. I'm, you know, very deep thinking and deep feeling. Mm-hmm. And I believe that she is too. And I think we just it's like we love each other, but it's also just so painful.
0: Yeah. And now that I'm, I'm a mother, sure I totally understand draining. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, but it's like what does it take and how long does it take to get to that place of healing, especially when there's, there's that barrier, you know, it's like, probably because you're both strong impasse, um, you probably can feel that emotion. Um, but then it's like communicating it is a whole other, um, barrier, you know? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. But I think another thing that you mentioned too, with your adoption experience or just adoptee experience, that I relate to is just the bullying, being picked on, and you Mm -hmm. know having to deal with that for such a long time. That um, I think that really has developed us because I relate to you in so many ways when it comes to your activism Mm -hmm.
1: and how you're Mm -hmm. such
0: an advocate for. not just Asian people, but all people of color, any people that are marginalized. Um, I love seeing your post and how eloquent you are with your communication of um, just the injustice around certain situations that are happening. And so, you know, I, I feel like our experiences really have led us to be Um, people that, you know, we've had to learn to stick up and stand up for ourselves. And so we're kind of protective like that with other people. And, and so I could be wrong, but just, just, you know, if you could kind of go into just that piece of your lifestyle and like where that kind of comes from, like, what is your why when it comes to that and, Mm. and how important, which I would assume it's a very important piece of your life because I see you express it, um, you know, almost daily or whenever certain (laughs) issues occur, which I think is great. I love it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So it's funny. Like, I think um, when I look back on my life, I think in some ways I've always been an activist in my heart, I Mm -hmm. think, because... Yeah, you know, too. as you mentioned, like I'm intensely emotionally sensitive to pain and suffering. I've always been keenly aware of injustice and, and and inequality, but of course, I'd be lying if I didn't acknowledge the role that my personal experiences play in my activism and my reasons that I engage. And activism, I mean you know my my experiences of racial bullying and violence absolutely inform my engagement in activism and movement work, um, but I think even with that setting that aside, uh, I think that that's just a part of my personality it's just a part of who I am. I mean in high school, it's mm-hmm. funny, I was thinking about this, and I was like, oh yeah, back in high school. I had helped uh, found a group on campus called Stand. It's really cheesy, but it stood for Socially Together <laughs> and Naturally <Aww>. Diverse. <laughs> you know, and I'm not English surprised. Teacher, <laughs> and my English teacher was kind of like, the, you know, you always have to have like a teacher advisor or whatever. And so he kind of helped us, um, you know, get it started. And we did, uh, we did this like uh, big day around MLK, you know, and uh, did an event around that and trying to engage other students on campus. And this was when I lived outside of LA and actually um, was a, I think I was like a sophomore, a junior in high school when uh, the awful beating of Rodney King Uh, was recorded and all the riots broke out at that time. And I remember my high school, they like got everyone in the gym. And it was really, I mean, it was unusual, but good because the high school administration, they let everybody, anyone who wanted to, any of the students get up on stage basically and talk about how they were feeling. And I remember I had a poem that I had written prior to this event, but it was around, it was a poem written about basically racial injustice. And so I got, I remember getting up on stage and like sharing that poem, you know? And um, so I think just in my heart, you know, largely because of my own personal experiences, but I think also because of my personality, that's always just kind of been a part of um, just what I, you know, want to do. I I think there are times when I step back from it, but I can't even like stop myself. (laughs) I mean, it just, it just kind of, bubbles out. But you know, what's interesting, though, is that this year in particular has actually kind of brought a shift in my activism for for right now. You know what I mean? I think we're always evolving. But I've been spending some time stepping back and reevaluating my direction. And so while I think I'll always be an activist at heart, I think this year, I started to realize I need to explore some different paths. And I think part of it is that I feel like I need to redirect from an external focus to an internal focus. And what I mean by that, it doesn't mean that like, oh, I'm only going to focus on myself. But I think I, I need to, I feel like I need to recenter myself. And part of this is that Mm -hmm. with some of the movement work that I've been doing, I have found myself consistently feeling invisible. And Mm. even in spaces that claim to be movement and activist based, a lot of times I have felt very invisible as specifically as a Korean adoptee. And so, and when you feel invisible in spaces that are supposed to be activist based, it can feel very draining and exhausting and discouraging. So I think this year, what I've been trying to do is I've been trying to step back and just try to restore and nurture. Kind of my identity and who I am, and trying to explore what it means to engage in activism with a more internal focus and with uh, with restoration in mind. And so, I think as a result of that, I've been writing a lot more. I've actually been um, experimenting a lot more with music, and I'm actually contemplating maybe trying to put out. You know, like a an album, maybe in the next year or so. Whoa. As a part, you know, as a part so of funny. trying to, yeah, like you know, I'm and I'm I'm somebody like that where I'm 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 always evolving and ex- exploring different things. But I think, yeah. like I don't want to stop engaging with mm-hmm. the communities, you know. But I feel like my focus needs to be more of like recentering who I am. So that as I engage in this work, I don't lose myself and I don't lose what's important to me. Because um, yeah. I felt like a, a, a little bit of that was starting to happen. And that's why I was starting to feel invisible. And that's never a good feeling, you know, like, well, yeah. So.
0: I love it, though, because, you know, like just for me, what I'm hearing is like growth and self-care. Sometimes I do think it is good to have redirection and then to be in spaces where you know you're doing something positive, but Mm -hmm. it feeds your soul too and not take away from. You know, because like for me, you know, I I wouldn't consider myself this strong on the front line type of um, activist type of individual. I do try to find my own way to give like my voice or a voice to other people. And so, you know, for me, it's like I've accepted that like the typical ways or fashions that people express themselves or the way that they emote their activism, it may not look like the same thing for me, you know, like I'm going to support and I'm going to. and, And that was a part of like me doing this podcast. You know like I just did an interview with the VP of the NAACP mm. um, of the Atlanta chapter, and you know he discussed the Ahmad um, Ar Arbery wow. case, and um, you know just really providing more facts over fiction, and so having you know just a platform for him to share that and and for people to get the information, and so you know it's like for me, you know like that was the reason why I wrote my book. Like what's the Mm -hmm. biggest way I can make an impact. And for me, it was like to share my story. So that's why I wrote my book. And then, you know, now it's like, I know some amazing people and that's, you know, I love how you express yourself. And, um, that's why I wanted you to be on is so, you know, people can just understand, another perspective and really be able to see people and hear people's stories. And, you know, because it's like, the one thing you can't negate is somebody's experience, you know, like you may not agree with it or like it or whatever, but that is their experience. And what you decide to get or take away from it, you know, is left up to the individual. But um, I think there's so many individuals that have zero exposure to an individual such as yourself or stories mm-hmm. like yourself or like my story. So I think it's important to share and communicate, you know, so this is kind of my form of like, you know, me using my voice in another way. So, so I think that's Absolutely. great. I think, oh, you know, no- con- yeah, continue to tap into the path that you're on. I, I kind of like, you know, I d- developed and kind of came up with this whole podcast thing over quarantine and you know, as horrible as having to go through this pandemic is and being just stuck in the house, it's like it has allowed for that whole reset and focus, you know, to mm-hmm. be shifted. So mm-hmm. um I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that's something that has always drawn me to you is your authenticity. You know, like you are just, you are doing you, you know, and I think that that yeah in and of itself is an act of resistance as women of color, mm-hmm. as uh, women who come from traditionally marginalized communities, just the yeah. act of being authentic and being yeah. true to who we know ourselves to be is yeah. so powerful and I yeah. think that we can underestimate that. And I think that's part of what I'm recentering around is that mm-hmm. what you said is that, Every person has to find their own way to resist, you know, Mm -hmm. to um, be an advocate, to find their own personal form of activism. And I think that that something in movement work that felt stifling at times for me was that it was almost kind of like there was only one way to do it. And as someone who is a nonconformist who's an artist, that 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 just that didn't work for me. And and that that sounds kind of judgmental. I shouldn't say it that way. Like I totally respect uh, movement work and it's necessary. It's a vital part of activism and and social change. But I think what I'm realizing is that it's not it's not necessarily the right fit for me. And so I really um connect with what you were saying about finding your own way, and yeah. oh my gosh, it's so awesome that you interviewed the v p of the the NAAC chapter here, and that I mean that's powerful, you know, giving that platform using your voice and your position to um advocate for Ahmad and justice for him, and so I think yeah. that that's powerful, that is activism, and Thank I think you. that's the thing is expanding the the definition of what that is and what it yeah. what it means to advocate for ourselves and for our related communities and i yeah. think that that's really at my heart it's just like i'm an artist and i like to tell stories and i like to do it in a way that appeals to people's emotions yeah. and that's that's kind of at my core of who i am and sometimes i feel like you know, that can get lost when yeah. I, I lose that internal focus.
0: But I think it's good that you're listening and paying attention to your instincts, because I think everything serves a purpose up to a point, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like what may have served you at one point, like no longer serves you. And then like, that's just that part of evolution. But then it's like, you know, I, I feel like you're probably the same like I am. Like when things just don't feel natural and it doesn't feel right and it's not serving me in a mm-hmm. sense where I'm el- I feel elevated on on a higher level mm-hmm. of like who I am, mm-hmm. then it's just time for me to kind of move on and explore other things. So yes, I, I think that's totally right. yeah. You get yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. We see each other. We are here. We are connected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things that I love about you. Like when I saw you read your poem, when I came to the spoken word event Mm -hmm. that you did, and then you did it to a cello, somebody playing the I was like, wait, what? What's going on right now? This is awesome. (laughs) How important, and I I think you pretty much have kind of touched on on it, but like tapping into like your freedom of expression, like Mm. how important is that to you? Well, and it sounds like, you're exploring other ways to do that right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, this—that I love that question. And I think, you know, at the heart of being an artist and a poet it is freedom of expression, right? I mean, I feel like art is the ultimate embodiment of freedom of expression. And especially as individuals from marginalized and oppressed communities, I think freedom of expression is vital to our existence um there's a quote that i love uh from audrey lord who is one of my favorite mm. poets and also yeah. just uh, and she was a a fierce activist just with her existence but her poetry just took it to the next level but she wrote poetry is not a luxury it is a vital necessity of our existence a revelatory distillation of experience illumination through which we give name to those ideas which are nameless and formless, but already felt. And so for me, poetry doesn't feel like a luxury. I feel like it is, it is, as Audrey Lord said, vital to our existence. And I think um, freedom of expression is a part of that. It's freedom of expression is power, it's about who controls our narratives and our stories and so if we don't have freedom of expression which is exemplified in things like art and poetry our histories and our stories get erased they mm. they become invisible because that's And then somebody
0: else can come and rewrite your
1: narrative Exactly mm-hmm. exactly and so um, you know i really believe that's why art and poetry things like that are so vital and need to be central um yeah to the, to the work that we do.
0: Well, and so I love it, how when you talk about your children and then just some of the things your, your kids say crack me up. And I'm like, (laughs) they they are are so just like little woke people running around here. (laughs) I love it. Um, So like, how do you, I guess, um, pour that into them? Because I feel like you, you know, I see that just from some of the posts and then just having met your children you know and just how much they love you and how loving they are and how you just really kind of allow them to express themselves but in a respectful way but then you know you you try to explore as a mother how do you allow them to be who they are as well yeah um so how do you kind of balance that
1: I mean I think that it's so funny because I know my parenting is heavily informed by how I was parented mm-hmm. <laughs> and like certain things that I don't want to do to my children. And yeah. so I think, you know, my Mike and I, we make a lot of mistakes for sure. And I think that that's one of actually the most vital things of being a parent is being willing to acknowledge your mistakes and apologize and say you're sorry and let your kids see that you're not perfect, you're human. Yeah. And sometimes I hurt my kids feelings and I need to apologize and I need to yeah. own that and take responsibility for that. And, um, it's hard to do sometimes obviously, cause we all have pride, but ultimately I think that I want so both Mike and I want so much for our children to feel empowered to be fully and authentically themselves, because yeah. as biracial children who will be identified as Asian, they're already going to be facing so much that's going to try to repress them, suppress them, change them, tell them who they are, tell them who they're supposed to be, who they're not supposed to be. And so we have to actively fight that and equip them and empower them to believe in who they are, to accept who they are, and to love who they are. And I think a big part of that is letting them express their emotions, right? Like whatever, if they're angry, if they're mad, or if they tell me in that moment, I hate you, or you're making me angry, I want want them to be able to express that. And it's uncomfortable sometimes because, you know, it's like, I think traditional and conventional ideas of what it means to be a parent is kind of this like authoritarian, like, I'm in control and I demand your respect, you know? But I don't think that that's healthy because it doesn't allow people to be who they really are. You know, it can stifle people. And so we regularly talk about emotions and we try to teach them that all of their emotions are valid and natural and deserve to be acknowledged and felt and are worthy of compassion and understanding. And that sounds very lofty and it's definitely much easier to say than to do. (laughs) (laughs) you know? And, um, I think another, and then the third, you know, the third thing, so it's like admitting our mistakes, making sure that they feel that they can be fully and authentically themselves by expressing all of their emotions. And then I think the other thing, the third thing that we really try to do is we really try. And again, we make lots of mistakes, but we try to center everything around love. And I guess Mm. what I mean by that is even when There are people who hurt us. So like, say something, they have a difficult interaction at school with another kid, or we have a conversation about some of the brutality and injustice that goes on in the world. I mean, they know all about, you know, slavery and segregation. They also know about what currently goes on with police brutality. They know about the Japanese internment camps. Like, they know about all these things. We we have these conversations in our house because you have to um but i think what we try to help them understand so they they have a fuller understanding is that hurt people hurt people and when people don't get enough love in their lives they end up hurting inside and then they end up hurting the people around them mm-hmm. and so i think that having that conversation with them it allows them to acknowledge all the hurt and injustice that they feel inside and that they see in the world but then framing it in that sense also hopefully empowers them to continue to love and to continue yeah. to
0: and not take those things personally and internalize yeah, it yeah. yeah to
1: understand it's not you you know we tell them all that all the time like that's not a reflection of you that's a reflection of that person and they must be hurting inside to have yeah. said something so awful or to have hurt someone so brutally It's because Mm -hmm. they're hurting and it's not about you.
0: Yeah. That was beautiful. I love it. (laughs) I love it. That's my TED Talk. Um, Just kidding. (laughs) I love it because you know, I always comment whenever you post about your kids, I'm like, oh my gosh, they are something else. Um, oh, but I, it, I asked you that because you know, you were talking about expression. I feel like for you, and I, I don't want to speak for you so you could tell me, but like for me, like when I know when I wrote my book, like that was very therapeutic for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I've seen you, you know, do spoken word, like I, I can just like it, I feel it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that therapy for you? What does poetry or expressing yourself in that manner do for you? And then after that, you know, of course, um, I would love for you to share one of your pieces with us. Okay.
1: <laughs> um, yes, poetry is absolutely therapy for me. Poetry, art, all of that. Art is life for me. I, I feel it's funny, like when I have to go a little while, maybe maybe I go a few days or you know, a week maybe where I'm not able to sit down and create, whether through poetry or painting or music, I, I literally can feel myself just getting all tensed up. And I just start to feel off center and I, I start getting grumpy almost where it just, yeah. I can, it, 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 it is, it feels like a need for me. Like it's not a hobby. Yeah. It's not something I just do for fun like it is for me it's as important as eating as going to the bathroom like it's it's self care but it it almost feels like a need where i start to feel myself diminishing and my well-being and emotional health i feel start to diminish when i'm not able to engage in those creative processes because it really is so therapeutic and cathartic for me
0: yeah nice yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you want me to share a piece now? I was, yes, please. <laughs> okay. So this is actually it's a, it's a new one, and
0: oh, you guys yeah. hear it here first. Don't my <laughs> And this is
1: actually a piece that I am um, have been currently adapting into a a musical piece. So, Whoa. um, yeah, so i I will share the words here, and then at some point, I will release the the song. I feel like it's almost done. Um, okay. but with it being, oh, so you know, May is Asian American Heritage Month. Mm-hmm. And um, so this poem is, obviously it's it's truncated and short. but what I wanted to do was kind of write a piece that, Communicated the ambivalence and conflict I feel at times as an adoptee and as an Asian person, but also both the kind of connection and disconnection I feel with my Asian origins and history that it's both my history, but also not my history because of being separated and uh, through adoption. Um, so it's, but because it's Asian American Heritage Month as well, I feel like it's very appropriate uh to share in that sense so um it's weird because i'm so used to like doing it to the music now that it feels (laughs) weird doing it without the music but uh the the title of it is kind
0: oh love it already okay
1: (sighs) okay i don't have a people i'm still looking for my people hair like an oil spill Eyes, black almonds, skin burned golden. I don't have a people. I am still looking for my people. What kind am I? I'm the kind shipped with plates, silks, and spices, propped up like a porcelain cup so they could sip me like a drug. I'm the kind they charlataned, their promises shape shifted until our ancestors were starved out, chased out, beaten, shot, and hung, then caged up on an island they named Angel. My ancestors left marks on the walls, desperate whispers. Remnants left by those dragged out by the angel of death. So, what kind am I? I am the kind whose women laid in beds like coffins for the comfort of boys who would murder them in their own homes. I am the kind they rounded up in slaughterhouses where dreams and families and innocence. Were butchered and frozen to never be spoken of again. Because I am the kind that's not quite human. The kind they tie in the middle of their rope, in their game of tug of war, demanding we choose a side. Quietly dissolve into their bloody waters, boiling and seeping beneath the bridge, as though our blood wasn't spread like paint on the rails and planks, as though our blood wasn't dumped like waste into the rivers and oceans, forced underground into the sewers and pipes, hiding lest we disappear from the earth. I'm the kind who was sold. White magic turned me into the kind who was stolen from my mother's arms. I'm that kind. I am the kind. I don't have a people. I am still looking for my people. That's it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh my gosh like how do you just end it you're like that's it I was, I was so drawn in then you're like yeah that's it <laughs> oh that was so good Mila that was beautiful oh thanks girl oh my gosh that was so beautiful
1: I can't wait to share the song with you.
0: <laughs> yes, I cannot wait. So please let me know when you're going to release it or share it, because that was that was amazing. Thank you. Um, so I guess we'll just wrap it up.
1: Yeah. And
0: if you could just share, I know, I know, I could do this all <laughs> night. You're uh, awesome. <laughs> if you could just share with everyone, um, I know I have every all of my guests on that share. What is your too much soul moment? So what is Something that's giving you all the feel goods right now,
1: yeah, this was easy for me when I saw that question, and it goes back to what we were talking about just a little bit ago. Honestly, being a parent yes. is my too much soul moment. And even though it's, you know, nonstop, exhausting, maddening at times, it really is the most beautiful, meaningful, hilarious, <laughs> fulfilling, uplifting honor that I've ever been given the opportunity to pursue. And I think it feels so good because my children are just constantly teaching me and reminding me every day what life is really about. Connection, love, understanding, compassion, forgiveness, um, hope, you know, lots of laughter, tears, (laughs) honesty, authenticity. And I think they just constantly challenge me to be my best self and to see the world in through the eyes of innocence and hope and love. And so they just, they're so precious to me. And I feel so grateful and lucky uh, to have them in my
0: life. Oh, so, they're lucky yeah. to have you also. <laughs> so sweet. Um, well, Aww. tell people how they can stay in contact with you and especially you know, to stay updated on your song and when you come out with your music?
1: Yeah, I got to work on all that. I'm so bad at like social media yeah. and marketing and all that stuff. You're so good at it. But um, so I am on Facebook. My privacy settings are such that it's sometimes I think <laughs> it's hard to find me, but it's just Mila <laughs> Konomis, you know, my my name. I'm also on Instagram. Um, that one is the handle is at Mila M I L A dot the letter C two K so the letter C number two C uh, K so Mila dot C two K um, so that's those are you know my social media um, yeah but I'm I like I said I'm I'm bad at all that so
0: <laughs> no you guys will enjoy her <laughs> posts I, I I love them, um, all of them each and every one of them Aww, but well, thank I you. Love so- you. Yes, I can't wait to see you when this is all over and we're safe know, to like get each But thank you so much. You know, I I love you. I adore you. I think you're one of the most beautiful souls walking Aww, on this you
1: make planet. Me
0: cry.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. And, you know, the feelings are mutual.
0: Oh, <laughs> thank you, Emilia. You have too much soul. Oh. <laughs>